0: This podcast is brought to you by the IIEA. Sharing ideas, shaping policy.
1: Good afternoon. Uh, You're very welcome. My name is Alex White, Director General of the Institute of International European Affairs. Welcome to my office. Um, This event uh, is the second in a series of webinars co-organized by the European Parliament Liaison Office in Ireland and the Institute, the IIEA, seeking to explore in depth, a number of important critical issues relevant to the future of the European Union. Uh, these are democratic resilience, uh, digitalization and the future of work, and the energy transition. And in that context, we're looking at the important role the European Parliament plays in making progress with respect to uh, those questions. And um, we have an expert panel of speakers um, exploring. the European Union can help deliver a sustainable and just energy transition for the European Union and its member states and its citizens, and in that uh, context discussing the crucial role that the European Parliament is playing uh, in this uh, transition. So just to let you know what's going to happen for the next hour or so, each of our three speakers will offer introductory remarks of up to about seven minutes or so. And then we we'll go to a Q&A with the audience, with you. Uh, you'll be able to join the discussion uh, using the Q&A function on Zoom, which you'll see on your screen. And uh, feel free, as we always say, to send in, pop in your questions throughout the session according as they occur to you, rather than waiting until the very end when sometimes questions. Tend to bunch up and one can't get around to them all. So, if something occurs to you, uh, just pop it into the system and we'll come to it once our speakers have finished their introductory remarks. You can also participate in the discussion on Twitter by using the handle at IIEA. Um, today's presentations and the QA are all on the record, um, just so you know that. Um, nothing secret here. Um, and now to our three speakers. I'll introduce each of them in a little more detail when, when I come to them, but just as you can probably see on screen, our three speakers Karen Cough, MEP, uh, Claudia Gamon, uh, MEP, and Professor Lisa Ryan. So I'm going to come on the basis of alphabetical order firstly to Karen Cough. Karen Cough is a Green Party MEP for Dublin. He sits on the Committees for Energy, Transport and Regional Development, is president of EUFORES, a European cross-party network that promotes the deployment of sustainable energy systems. He's currently the Rapporteur for the Revision of the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive, the EPBD. Prior to his election to the European Parliament in 2019, he served as a Dublin city councillor, TD for Dun Laoghaire, and Minister of State with responsibility for sustainable transport and climate change. Um, And his CV ranges far wider and longer than that, but we just don't have the time to go through it all. So welcome, Karen. The floor is yours, seven minutes or so. We look forward to hearing what you have to say.
2: Thanks very much, Alex, and good to see you again and to be with the audience, including my colleague uh, from Austria. So uh, it's a pleasure to, to have you all online. Uh, if you don't mind, I will uh, share a screen uh, if I can and pull out a a presentation, uh, which has, I think, just seven slides. So um, I will just see if I can find the presentation and it'll hopefully pop up. Uh, and there we go. Just saying OK to a few things and uh, slideshow from the start. There we go. Hopefully, Alex, you can see uh, the view that I see uh, when I walk out from the European Parliament. Terrific. So that is uh, uh, both the the literal view from Brussels, but I also want to give you, I guess, the metaphorical view from Brussels as to where uh, we are going with the uh, sustainable and uh, just uh, transition. So um, four years into uh, my mandate, uh, I would preface remarks by saying it has been a tumultuous uh, few years. I, In, in a sense, the, the three C's come to mind, uh, that we started off with climate. Uh, we then entered six months later into a period of COVID, uh, and a, a couple of years after that, a period of conflict uh, with Russia's murderous war uh, in Ukraine. The good news from my perspective is the, green, the European Green Deal is still very much in play and continuing within the European Parliament. Uh, I think no one quite knew what was going to happen when Covid took hold uh, and then when conflict started on our eastern border uh, there was again a level of uncertainty but certainly with the repower EU plan coming from the European Commission and endorsed by the European Parliament it is very clear that we need to accelerate our efforts to decarbonize at a European Union level, not just to save the planet, but to break ourselves away from dependency on Russia and other states that are run by oligarchs or dictators. So the fit for 55, well, the European Green Deal, I guess, was what was announced uh, and which we voted for as parliamentarians, parliamentarians in the course of, of the year 2019. And even at that early stage, it broke down into a series of packages. Uh, I don't know how good your eyesight is. It's certainly straining mine to read the small print. But you can see in the bottom left-hand corner, CO2 emission standards for cars and vans. And you can see that it that has become a transported a transformative piece of legislation, which we now call the ICE ban, the internal combustion engine ban, essentially the end of the production of vehicles, vans and cars that will run on fossil fuel by the year 2035. So you can see that individual elements of this European Green Deal are extraordinarily transformative in the coming decade. And in a nutshell, the name of the deal is about 55%. a 55%. Well, this translated into a, the Fit for 55 package of um, a series of measures that would reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by uh, 55% between the year 1990 and 2030. Is this ambitious? It certainly is. However, a lot has been done at a European Union level in the years between 1990 and, shall we say, 2020. Uh, that having been said, we still have to ramp up our efforts in the decade ahead and that's why this fit for 55 package of around 20 different pieces of legislation and there's you know in different colors the different files that have been led by the environment committee the ITRI or energy committee uh, the transport committee down at the bottom the economic affairs committee I've highlighted in yellow the one where I am the rapporteur or the lead negotiator, the recast energy performance of buildings uh, directive. But in every sector, from aviation to land use, we need to work hard at decarbonising. And we also need to work hard at bringing citizens with with us and ensuring that they have a just transition uh, as we move towards a lower uh, carbon economy. Two of the headline packages are the Renewables Energy Directive and the Energy Efficiency Directive. But these are backed up by new laws such as CBAM, the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, to prevent imports into the European Union that are not paying a full price for carbon. And that graphic that I showed you in the previous slide of the honeycomb is very important to remember because this is a package that has to work vertically and horizontally and I think what keeps the European Commission awake at night is the need to ensure that these legislative uh, pieces uh, of the jigsaw do not contradict each other and are in harmony and I think thus far uh, we've done very very well. The fit for 55 package there's the headlines the renewable energy the energy efficiency directive and um, all of these pieces of legislation are through or nearly through the legislative pipeline almost all of them have been voted on by the european parliament some are still at trialogue stage where a deal has been hammered out between the european commission the council the relevant council of or the council of relevant ministers Uh, and indeed the the Parliament. Uh, With my own file, the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive, uh, our first trialogue takes place in three weeks' time on the 6th of June. But you can see another file below there on sustainable aviation fuels. We hammered out a deal at trialogue a few weeks ago. It's coming back to the Parliament for a final vote in a few weeks' time. So most of these pieces of legislation are going through or are on the point of going through. A key issue, though, in all of this is the money. And this graphic produced by Renovate Europe um, in regard to my own file, you know, where do we find the money to renovate our buildings? And this generates newspaper headlines here at home in Ireland. Um, and one of the answers is through European funds. Uh, and a lot of the money made available at Europe already through the multi annual financial framework can be made available for this particular issue of uh, renovating buildings. Uh, And it's interesting just looking at this kind of snapshot. We also have the, um, the recovery money from COVID, the recovery and resilience facility. In Ireland's case, that's just under a billion, but for a country like Italy, it amounts to about 70 billion euro. So the COVID recovery money is very significant for countries that suffered very badly during the COVID period. And then of course, there are structural funds. There is the Just Transition Fund, Horizon Europe. We're seeing parts of that money being made available in Europe or in Ireland, not as much as in other countries, because let's face it, the the economic performance of Ireland has been way ahead of most other countries who who are dealing with Challenging levels of unemployment, challenging levels of low or negative growth, and many of them would um, be envious of the challenges that we have here in in, uh, Ireland. An issue that does arise, though, to my mind, is one of efficiency versus sufficiency. A lot of the legislation that we're dealing with is about improving the efficiency of cars. Of buildings. And I think there is a debate that we need to have about sufficiency that made its way into the last climate change negotiations uh, in the Middle East last autumn. But it is hard to find a political majority for sufficiency, uh, which I think demands us to rethink our economic system somewhat. So, for instance, on buildings, you can have a very large home that has a low energy use per square metre. But really, you might ask yourself, do you need a three or four or 5,000 square foot home? And these are, I think, are some of the debates that we will have in the the coming years. Uh, And I think that needs to be part of the discussion that we will perhaps have in the next mandate of the Parliament starting uh, next year. One final remark I would say is that I am acutely conscious that I live in Brussels in an environment that very much focuses on environmental action. But the Green Group are only 10% of the Parliament. I would imagine, well, we know a majority of the Parliament are in favour of climate action, but perhaps not at the pace that I believe science demands. And you've seen a kickback or a pushback, should I say, on the, um, the European nature law And on some other pieces of legislation that I would argue are integral parts of the European Green Deal. So, in conclusion, I would say that challenges remain. There there is a minority of political interests who oppose the European Green Deal. There is a majority in favour of it. But sometimes the support for the European Green Deal is lukewarm. And I think support, particularly for the just transition measures, such as the Social Climate Fund that will provide some of the monies to help those who have difficulty uh, in in paying the price for the green transition. We need to do more in that area. We need to ensure that people are not left behind. And an environmental transition is of no use unless it comes with social safeguards that protect, protect those who are most at risk Uh, as we move ahead on this journey. Last Friday, I was in Paris with the International Energy Agency and I described what's happening in Europe as a gentle revolution. But Fatih Burrell, the head of the IEA, turned to me and said, it's not that gentle. It's quite bumpy at the moment, particularly because of what has happened in Ukraine. Uh, And as we move away from these energy sources from Russia and elsewhere, there have been Price spikes, there have been challenges. So the outlook is not all positive, and I think it demands constant vigilance as we move forward.
1: Here on thank you for that clear and succinct presentation. Very grateful for that. Um, I'm going to turn next to our uh, second speaker, Claudia Gamon, is a member of the industry research MEP is a member of the Industry, Research and Energy Committee uh, of the European Parliament. He is the um, spokesperson for all EU related issues um, for, new aus- for the New Austria and Liberal Forum, NEOS, and she sits with the Renew Europe Group uh, in the European Parliament. Previously, she represented NEOS as, I don't know if that's the way we should be pronouncing NEOS, NEOS, as a member of the Austrian Parliament. In her work, she focuses mainly on the topics of energy, climate policies, science, research, and technological progress. Uh, Claudia Gamund studied international business administration and international management at the Vienna University of Economics and uh, in Louvain. She gained her first political experience in 2011 when she was the leading candidate for the Young Liberals in the Austrian Students' Union. So you're very, very welcome to this IIEA webinar, Claudia. And the floor virtually, the virtual floor is yours. And we look forward to what you have to say.
0: Thank you very much, Alex. And, and, and thank you for the invitation and giving me the chance to, to speak today and to try and present it. I guess a you also from an MEP from another country, because I know that, I, I guess, uh, one of the challenges of the European Parliament is, of course, making the energy transition and making energy transition policies work for all member states. And I think we have seen, especially in the last years, the limitations of the energy union and, uh, and also maybe the potential that could be there with uh, if we try to work together a little bit better in this regard. But I would like to give you maybe some insight into my views on this. And I want to to thank my colleague, uh, Keren Kupfer for for his overview also on the files that he's working on and and generally to give us an idea of how big uh, the European Green Deal is and how big this Fit for 55 legislation package has been. Um, Because whenever I, I, I talk to people in my constituency here in the West of Austria, we have lots of hydropower. And we have lots of pumped hydro storage. Uh, it's a very different situation, very privileged, I guess, geographically, um, the situation that we're in. And also when young climate activists come to talk to me and say nothing is happening on that member state level, I try and explain a lot is happening on the EU level. A lot is in progress, but it will unfortunately take some time until it reaches the member states and till it reaches member states um, legislation or legislative process and that is something to consider but i want to i also want people to understand that there is a lot of change coming their way a lot of change coming their way in terms of their own private home the way where their energy comes from what it will cost a lot a lot is happening and it's at a pace that has not been seen before in the European Union, when it comes to energy and, and climate policy. And that's something that we have to get people ready for. Uh, one of my biggest priorities, always when I try to talk about the work that is important in energy policy, is try and focus on the paradigm shift that we're seeing in the energy transition and what comes with it when we move from a centralized, fossil based energy production system to a renewable space and in its nature, decentralized system that comes with lots of changes, not just for the European Union, for the member states, for regulators, but also for communities at the local level, the potential that it could mean for rural, de- uh, rural developments and and the, I guess also the challenges that the communities will have and how to best manage new decentralized nature and and the the potential that it could have for local communities and this all starts with the energy infrastructure and for that there's lots of investment needed in the European Union in order to support and the new nature or this new paradigm that we live in in the in the renewables based system I guess of today and in the future and then I worked on on some legislation that has to do strictly with uh, with cross-border infrastructure. So, I mean, it's all technical nonsense, but in this case it's called, it's the, the 10E legislation that deals with the cross-border energy infrastructure. And the, the view that it gave me is that we have so much to do with that part of energy policy. Okay, so I, I do believe that there is a huge investment gap when it comes to energy infrastructure but also in terms of underst- uh, the, the member states, regions, and local communities understanding the size of the investment gap and what will be needed to really ensure that local communities can benefit from the energy transition. And uh, that will, that actually brings me to, to something that, that my colleague mentioned and That is what's the other side of the Parliament what's hindering us in going further and and really pushing the agenda forward, and that is the fact that well elections do matter, the majorities in the European Parliament do matter. And even though um, the Commission, and I guess all the institutions that try to be as objective as one can be in these questions. I mean, uh, there's no true objectivity in this, but I guess we can we can try to act as, as, as objectively as we can, that there is, for example, no further need for natural gas infrastructure, as an example. There is still a lot of public money that goes into new infrastructure, where I think we might as well be burning it somewhere else, because the gap and the needs that we have in the future of our energy system is so big that every euro spent on new um, fossil infrastructure for me is is a euro wasted on the past. Um, something else that I would like to mention um, because I'm working on it currently and it's one of the big parts also of, of Fit for 55 is the revision of the gas and hydrogen market. And it's also just as relevant uh, for Ireland as it is for all the other countries because it does have to do with the future of heating. And what we have, or what I have been trying to do is to make it a package that is also about decarbonizing the gas system and giving people a way out of gas and making it fit for purpose for local communities so they can use energy systems integration, that they can use heating, um, sustainable heating that they might have available locally, but it's a question of know-how, it's a question of integration. And it's a question of, I guess, reducing administrative hurdles, administrative burdens that make it too complex and too complicated for people to really have access to the potential that is there. And while I would disagree with my colleague when he says that the big question is the money, I do know that, for individuals, for consumers, the big question is the money, but I think for um, for those that have to bring um, the companies that work in the system and the people that want to make it a legislative reality at home, it's a question of, of making it as easy as possible. And we have to deal with so much bureaucracy that is in the way of of um, of keeping up the pace um, of the energy transition, that it really angers me. And personally, I think that it's it's about making it easier, making it more accessible to more people, to more businesses, and 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 just you know doing some. Sometimes it's also about doing a bit less in Brussels and regulating a bit less in some areas. Um, so maybe this is also something where truly liberal policies do meet with truly green policies in the way that we have the same goal and, and can, uh, can relate in the same way. Um, yeah, I think uh, I shouldn't talk too long, so this is it for me and, uh, and my focus is, uh, as I said, the, the paradigm shift that I wanted to explain to people that will come with the energy transition and the potential that it could bring for local communities.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Claudia, for that. Um, An interesting uh, point at the end that it's not so much about the money, it's about um, making it as easy as possible. And and that does raise, of course, pretty profound questions in relation to the nature of regulation and what is thought to be achieved by regulation, I suppose in some people's minds anyway, the necessity of regulation, but you're making the opposite or sort of making a a different emphasis, which is that perhaps, um, in some instances, the regulation is too burdensome, would you say, Um, but maybe we'll get a chance to explore some of those points in the Q&A. So our third um, speaker, um, Lisa Ryan, is Professor in Energy Economics in the School of Economics at University College Dublin. Lisa's research is in clean energy technology adoption, energy markets, and climate change economics and related policy. She's an active member of the UCD Energy Institute, where she co-leads the Interdisciplinary Empower Project relating to the decarbonisation of electricity and consumer technologies in climate change mitigation policy. Lisa is a principal investigator in the flagship NEXIS project. She was the senior energy economist in the energy efficiency unit at the International Energy Agency in Paris, the second mention today of the, that August institution, until summer 2013, where she led research projects relating to energy efficiency, finance, transport, and cross-sectoral policy. Um, Lisa, over to you. Look forward to what you have to say.
3: Thank you very much, Alex. And thank you overall for the invitation to speak at this event. Um, it's, I'm delighted to be involved in a policy discussion, get me out of my academic ivory tower where I've been since 2016. And I still take a lot of my research, I have to say it's in you know, technology adoption, but always in the context of um, policy analysis. Um, and so, of course, in Ireland, a lot of our policy is coming from Europe. So I follow closely the developments at a European level. Um, Kieron Cuff started, the, you know, by introducing the Green Deal and the Fit for 55 legislation. When I started thinking about this talk today, I start I, I panicked a little, thinking, where do I begin? Because, as he already stated, it is such a broad package, and the Fit for 55 has all the legislative measures. I had a quick look earlier to see where we are at with those legislative measures. I think of the 58 in the train, uh, this is euro talk for me, um, you know, about 40 have departed, but there's still quite a few that have to go, but that just shows you the scale of the legislation that is required to be implemented to achieve some of this, um, these very ambitious targets. From my perspective, and from the I think the discussion today, the three big targets are the CO2 emissions ones at 55% reduction, the renewable energy target that has now gone to 40% by 2030, and the energy efficiency target, which I still call 38% reduction. It seems that now it's we're, we're quoting it in different terms, but it is hugely ambitious, all by 2030. And from an Irish perspective, have translated we are translating these into um uh, you know irish policy via the climate action plan and um there we are really betting very heavily on the electrification of let's just say it, nearly everything and um, we have you know we are well above our targets for um, co2 emissions we have a carbon budget that's meant to be achieved by 2020 our first carbon budget that we are running ahead of um, and we are betting heavily that we are going to electrify heat and transport and we are going to decarbonize the electricity sector. So I'm paying very close attention, I suppose at a European level, what is going to happen with um, electricity. Um, I think this year we have seen with, I mean, even pre the Ukraine crisis, um, we, we could see that electricity prices have been rising um, as a result of gas prices rising after the post COVID um, situation where economic activity took off again. So already from September, 2021, you saw natural gas prices rising. and you know i agree with claudia that normally we should not be supporters of natural gas it is a carbon based fuel but in the irish context where we're trying to switch to renewables and we don't really have, we have very little interconnection we are very reliant on natural gas as being our cleanest fossil fuel so when natural gas prices start to rise and 50% of our electricity is being generated from natural gas it does mean that our electricity prices really start to take off Um, And I do worry about this from a consumer perspective. A lot of my research is on consumer technology adoption. The problem is that as we're encouraging people to to take on heat pumps or electric vehicles, it's really not helpful when um, electricity prices become um, very high. They've doubled in Ireland, as they have in many European countries. So I think one of the things I'm paying close attention to is the electricity market reform which um, is, you know, we already had um, some proposals now that came out in March 2023 from um, the Commission. The I would regard these measures as a kind of a half a half step in a way. I think that we all agree that we have an electricity market situation where we're, it's, it's a paradigm shift, just like Claudia said, where we are switching from a fossil fuel-based system to a renewables based system. And our electricity markets are not fit for purpose in that regard when you have, um, no marginal costs associated with electricity generation. We have fixed costs, and so the, the proposals that are there are starting to address this, but they're really recommendations. We should have more fixed costs. We should have more power purchase agreements rather than a fundamental reform. And this will take a lot of time. It took Ireland about a decade to implement the current electricity market structure, and it took about a decade for that to be designed. So it will take a long time, but I think that's something that we would really, that really needs to get going. And um, we have the Clean Energy Package in place since 2019. There are eight directives there already. And I think that's something that will continue to be uh, well revisited now. I sometimes look at the poor European Parliament. It seems that you know, not once uh, you know the, the even the EPBG or the Renewables Directive. They haven't the old versions haven't been there very long, and we're already having to re, rescope, renegotiate um, all of those targets, and with not just the targets but the measures that we need to implement them. Um, so there have been a few uh, legislative changes this year and regulatory changes um, as a result of the um, energy crisis we've seen the intervention measures that came in in September 2023, Repower EU, and this, I I call it the minor electricity market reform, although that may not make people very happy. Um, Repower EU was quite interesting in that it it is very much aligned with, um, you know, trying to diversify away from fossil fuels, so we're killing a few birds with one stone, diversifying where are also the existing fossil fuels are coming from, and trying to uh, boost industrial decarbonization but one that I thought was very interesting that was there was trying to improve permitting and this will come back to uh, Claudia's point on infrastructure and um, as I said we're betting very heavily on electricity and we're not the only country doing so um, and this will require offshore wind this will require but also interconnection it will require a lot more in reinforcement of wires in Ireland, we're trying for about a decade now. We are trying to build it into just a big wire between north and south, and we have huge problems doing so. So, without uh, some kind of streamlining of the permitting and planning, and I think this is extraordinarily difficult to do, every country seems to be facing it. We are going to be stuck and mired in um, planning difficulties that will mean that will hinder our switch over to a renewable electricity. Um, but overall, I think that we, the crisis that we've seen in the last year has hopefully, among the wider population, reinforced the idea that, firstly, domestic energy supplies are something that are to be favored. Renewables made that. Fossil fuels, and geopolitically, they are very difficult to, to control, basically, because they're outside the European Union. Um, and that electricity is extremely important and we need to get it right. So hopefully, I'm, I'm more hopeful, I think, that the general population will be supportive of um, a switch to renewables and also the infrastructure around this that is required. I was very happy this week in Ireland where we had our first offshore wind um, auction results and the price, although it's discussed in the media quite a bit, is more favorable than I think most would have expected at 86 euros a megawatt hour. So things are progressing in the right direction but I do worry a lot about Uh, how fast we can get things built by 2030. And I also have to say that I have changed my mind a little bit on the natural gas situation, Claudia, that although I really don't like seeing natural gas or any more investment in any kind of fossil fuel, I don't see a way around it in countries like Ireland where we um, need some kind of short-term gain. Um, So I wouldn't like to see long-term infrastructure being built, but I think we will need to have some natural gas capacity in the short-term to facilitate this transition. And I think
1: that's what i am stuck with now. Thank you very much, um, Lisa, for that, for those insights. Um, and you, you mentioned planning difficulties and sort of capacity issues there towards the end of of, of your, your presentation. And I wonder, um, because you, we hear so much about that now, about the sort of bottlenecks in the systems, your know, difficulty of supply chain in respect to renewables and so on. And a lot of people talking about problems of capacity and ability to deliver, not just in Ireland, but in many countries, including countries that might sometimes be seen as even more advanced than us. I mean, Kieran, what, what, how critical or how much of a problem or how big of an obstacle in broad brush terms do you think? The capacity of, we'll come back in a minute to the willingness and the political question, but the actual, as it were, engineering technical capacity of modern states to to actually do this transition. How big of a question is that, do you think?
2: Well, I think for Ireland, the the prospect of offshore wind is a hugely important one, and I think we are building bigger and more challenging in more challenging locations than we have ever done. That having been said, I actually don't think the engineering challenges are the difficulty. Uh, I think, uh, as the other speakers alluded to, the the regulatory process is is a bigger challenge. I think within Ireland, we often say planning is a problem. We need to make planning easier. The more challenging issue is to address the lack of resources in the planning field. Uh, I know I bring my own bias in here because I'm trained as a planner, uh, but I think we do need more staff in our national uh, planning um, agency and in board Planola. But we also need more staff at a local authority level within the national parks and wildlife services within the areas that will be impacted by this transformation. It could be marine life, it could be be, uh, land species on land, but we need to analyze the impact that we will have. All of that having been said, there is a move to simplify the regulatory process at a European level. Franz Timmermans, the executive vice president of the commission talks about this all the time. And some of the examples he uses is for instance, the replacement of a wind farm with taller turbines. And I think that's a reasonable request to allow a bit more flexibility uh, within the planning process to allow for some expansion of what we all uh, already have. I'm not sure if Ireland is unique in all of this, but I do know for some of the smaller infrastructure projects sometimes we have to produce as many as 20 different reports. And I certainly think at a European Union level, there needs to be more joined up thinking between the different legislation that would certainly make the path smoother and hopefully perhaps a bit faster.
1: Picking up on that, uh, Claudia, just on the the regulation and um, your point about that it should be made it should be made easier. Uh, for things to happen, should be perhaps facilitate developments should be facilitated in a uh, uh, to to progress more quickly. Um, and reflecting on what Kieran just said, there is there though on the other side of the coin the risk of clashing with you know citizens' interests, citizens' groups. Um, residents in rural areas, you know, indeed even in urban areas, who obviously uh, will want to influence candidates in European elections and indeed in other elections in the coming months and years. Is there a, is there inevitably a clash there? Simplifying the planning system, making it happen more quickly, and then on the other side, the demands of citizens to be heard in relation Mm -hmm. to
0: infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, I understand the connection, because this is also how the planning process in Austria works, for example, and this is part of the reason why these processes and permitting take so long. But I think we have to accept that they should have relatively little to do with each other. I think in order to really guarantee acceptance for renewables expansion, because they are visible in a very different manner as as the fossil based infrastructure was visible. It is visible, it is part of the landscape, and you can just imagine, I live in the, I live in the Alps. People say they're not ready to see uh, wind turbines on mountains, but then again, why not? I mean, it's a, I I think the way to go about local um, questions or, or fears that people have is to, is to, is a different way of uh, of public policy making. It's an open process. It's involving people very early. It's explaining goals. It's leadership. And I think very often, ex- especially at the local level, um, we don't prioritize um, bringing people into the process. We don't prioritize public forums. We don't prioritize um, an early integration of communities into the planning process. And also, and that is, for example, if I compare the Swiss model to the Austrian model, in Switzerland, there is a huge focus on making local communities benefit financially from energy projects. And I know that this isn't, this is something that many EU member states might have to get into, but I do think that there is a, that there is Value added in explaining to local communities, you can invest, you can make it part of, of the business of your local community, you can make people benefit from it. And I see a huge potential in there. But I think this is smart and good policy making and a different way of, of going about anything in politics, to be honest. Any big change has to come with an open, integrated process. And the permitting should be about regulation. The permitting should be about what is possible, and what is necessary to do. And I see a difficulty actually in in the way in where we leave space for member states to overregulate, and where we overregulate on the European level. I would much rather have clearer policy making on the European level in what is necessary in the permitting processes, but we give the member states so much space and setting up a wind farm in Austria can take up to two to three. I think no. I think the maximum right now that we're having is seven years. That is ridiculous. It's ridiculous for something, especially if you look at what is, what is, the, what is, the, what is the, the greatest benefit of renewables is that it's really quick to scale them up if you do it correctly. So we're actually missing the point of the renewables expansion that we have, we don't have enough time to wait so long.
1: And, and of course, Lisa, there's also the question of grid infrastructure, which is also a a major, perhaps consideration for, well, for some citizens anyway, if it's, if it's to be located near them. Um, And we, we had going back five or six years, had some involvement in it myself, some you know, a much public controversy here in relation to, um, frankly, what is seen by many as quite necessary grid infrastructure that we're going to need, not least north-south. Um, and that, that's, um, that's been slow as well, hasn't it?
3: It has. It, it, you know, it, it comes back to the same thing of encouraging people to understand and educating people about what the benefits are. Um, just taking one step back in terms of the planning whole um, area there, I am a little bit more hopeful in terms of offshore wind, and I think that's one of the reasons people are in- encouraging for offshore winds now. In Ireland, we've only had a one offshore wind farm, so we'll see. But I, I also think, although we've been a bit slow getting started, I do quite like the the, the way that we are. It's centrally led at the moment, so it's a different uh, way of doing things. That it won't be just mm. ad hoc developer lets. So we're designating <clears throat> areas where we think. Uh, wind, offshore wind farms should go, and I, I sat in on a call. Um, I have a PhD student who's just starting to look at this area of acceptance of offshore wind among coastal communities. And um, there are different areas. There will be other problems with offshore wind. There may be, you know, environmental issues. There may be uh, fishing issues. So there may be other people who are not as happy than the communities. But the communities that I sat in with on a kind of a they were having a conversation, a consultation on um, offshore winds that, that may be located near them was so positive they couldn't they were thinking about all the different opportunities that were going to be there and um, they were hoping about the community benefit fund that has not yet been designed but again coming back to some kind of financial gain but just the general economic activity that was going to be generated uh, through so um is there it, it, things may not be uh, always as dire as we sometimes portray them and and also with i agree totally with uh, Cuff, that i think the, on board planola has been under resourced and they seem to be at least that's what i'm being told that more people are being um, hired but particularly people with expertise that is a problem that we don't have that many people who know about offshore wind just because we haven't had that sector so um you know there's going to be a new regulatory agency mara as well that's in the process of getting set up so i you know it, it seems that some of these issues are being addressed albeit a little bit late but if they can get going we may be able to address some of them but then after that the grid infrastructure Yes, this is going to be very important. But one thing we have to always look at, what is the smartest way to do it? And let's not do unnecessary grid infrastructure and try and reduce our demand at peak times so that we don't have to build extra capacity and reinforce grids that are only there because they're used for a half hour um, every day in winter time. So there are some things that we really need to make sure we have a handle on because grid infrastructure is difficult to reinforce. It's expensive. And it is, you know, it, there's big wires, there's small wires, it goes right out to every neighborhood when everybody's electrified. So we'll need to make sure that ESP networks and air grid who are going to be really carrying out this grid infrastructure um, have a handle on where it's, you know, how can we do this in the smartest
1: way? Sure. A question for the two parliamentarians. Well, Lisa, we're happy for you to comment on it as well from what you've observed, but just again in relation to the role of the parliament, if you both would, would the European parliament, both reflect on that. I mean, a question that's been suggested to me here is, if you thought, or if the parliament had a greater role in the legislative uh, process than it currently does, would we see more or less progress towards the, the fit for 55 targets, for example. In other words, is the parliament of the EU decision making institutions, and it's played, obviously, it has an important role in, in the decision making infrastructure, um, is the parliament a progressive force for change, or is it sometimes a block on change? And how what how do you reflect on, on the parliament from being in it? In, in terms of its role in this on this agenda, Claudia, first maybe.
0: I'm a bit conflicted on this. I'm not hmm. sure if it would be if it would be any better if we had a bigger role because what I did notice uh, with many of the different fit for fifty five files is that it was hugely dependent on the group of negotiators, on the individuals, on the rapporteur, on on the shadow rapporteurs from the groups, and that has to do with with the the parliamentary groups being very um, very non-homogenous, actually, especially when it comes to climate policies, it's the case with different policies as well. But in terms of climate, um, the the um, the borders within the groups follow a different kind of logic than they would do in other. In other policy areas. And I think this might change over time. But this, this focus on the Green Deal in the legislative nature, everything also in, in politics, the pace of the change has increased rapidly in the last five years. And the changes also that parties had to recognize, that policymakers had to recognize on how parties in all European member states had to adapt their, their programs, their agendas in order to reflect. The need also coming from, um, coming from the public, and so you really see the files where you have a skilled negotiator, somebody who can really who's who who is able to to make it an inclusive process, of bringing people in, who's a great whip also when it comes to bringing in the votes for the final vote. So I, I, it really depends. But on the other hand, I think it's just how democracy works and how parliamentarism. Is supposed to work, it really does matter, and um, who the individual MEP is and who's elected.
2: You're on. yeah, I think it does vary um, depending on the file. I think the general view is that the Parliament is usually a bit more progressive than Council or the Commission, uh, but at times I've seen the Commission and indeed Council be more progressive then the Parliament. I, I think Claudia is absolutely right. Uh, we're always watching who has got that file, who's leading, who's shadowing, uh, and that tells you an awful lot. And there can be a groan of despair or a cry of, of relief, depending on who, which political group and which, which negotiator, almost more importantly, uh, is, is in charge. I mean, without naming names, I was shadowing on an own initiative report this is not legislation but it's reports that the parliament produces on urban mobility and i was dealing with a very conservative uh, rapporteur who didn't want to have a hierarchy of who should access urban areas so cars and pedestrians should be put on the same basis that really stemmed from the rapporteur and i could not change their view so i i think a a good um, MEP can really um, navigate through the complexities of the different institutions. Uh, And I guess we rely on the political groupings putting forward progressive leaders for these files. And there is a few shadows. There are a few shadows on the horizon uh, with the move to the far right in certain uh, countries that could end up blocking some climate legislation in the next mandate Uh, and that that is a concern it is certainly a shadow on the horizon lisa um
1: i go to your first in this question but i will come back to kieran cuff because it relates to something that he said uh owen lewis who's the co-chair of our climate and energy group here at the institute he reminds us that kieran made an important point concerning new Irish dwellings and neighbourhoods. Good Irish progress in bear ratings is being made, but how will you address all of this if the dwellings are twice as large as the European norm and four times less dense? Uh,
3: Thanks, Alex. I think we're back again, are we? (laughs) Um, He he is completely right. We have very large uh, one-off housing scattered around the country. Poorly planned, it has to be said. it costs a lot to build the infrastructure, both uh, to to connect the both electricity, water, all the other infrastructure that you need. The other issue associated with those large dwellings is that the older ones, we have a huge number of uh, dwellings that have oil-fired heating. I think that's the largest largest share in Europe as well. And um, so, I mean, just tackling that first of all, and, and also we still have houses that don't even have central heating that are still using a solid fuel to heat their homes. So if it were me, I would be trying to target um, those larger dwellings with oil-fired heating and solid fuel heating, and they are not going to ever be connected to a gas grid probably at this stage, they should be targeted for heat pumps and renovation. Obviously, you have to renovate and bring their energy consumption down before you can uh, put in the heat pump. But I think that, and a lot of this is about rural Ireland as well. And so, unfortunately, we start getting into this uh, apparent conflict between you know, you know, rural Ireland being made to to make their dwellings smaller, and you know, being uh, it, it generates this kind of conflict. And I think one way around that would be to you know, give different grants to different. Uh, Areas, depending on your situation, you know, similarly will be for transport. These are areas of Ireland are never going to have public transport either. They should get a different grant to somebody in an urban area, perhaps for an EV. Similarly, they should be maybe given a preferential grant for a renovation um, uh, uh, and a heat pump. Because we will also get bigger bang for our buck because they're switching from oil rather than an urban dweller again who might be switching just from a quite efficient gas condensing boiler. So how do we, so that's the main thing I would do. It's quite difficult to decide the size of a dwelling. I think there is a lot of planning restriction now in place in terms of just this urban or just building um, houses in uh, in new areas that are not uh, well-serviced. And this is causing conflict. Uh, people don't like it if, p- if people are from a particular area. But I think that's something, unfortunately, we do have to continue with, because it's not sustainable to keep building in one-off greenfield
1: sites.
2: Aaron? Yeah, um, this this is a challenging one. And those who have recently railed against the 15-minute city and low-traffic neighbourhoods, if they get a whiff of a suggestion that we wish to suggest to them what size their home might be i can only imagine the protests that we we might get on that one look this for many this the cha- the transition is challenging and it's not just moving away from oil it's from wood to oil to gas to electricity i was in a conversation with the German housing minister yesterday she said we don't want to push older people away from using wood to heat their homes and obviously in, in Austria uh, wood biomass is, is is hugely important so we have to gently move people in the right direction and the point I think that Lisa made about high cost of electricity it reminds me of the sign in the local barbers a a A a cheap haircut is not good. A a good haircut is not cheap. And when it comes to energy, we want prices that are not cheap, but that are affordable. Uh, And I I think this is the the dilemma with the reform of the electricity market. We want to ensure that we move towards renewables to produce this electricity, but we don't want to absolutely favour short term reductions in prices in order to achieve that because if we do we would just build more more gas um uh, power generators so we absolutely need to find the sweet spot that brings the transition at the rate that is needed but that also brings people with us uh, and i think often the local conversations that we would have as claudia would know in austria or here in ireland to show that there's a community benefit, to bring people on this journey. I mean, literally, I often describe the huge offshore wind farm that I often see in North Wales from the train, Gwinty Moor. And I think it's beautiful. And I had similar discussions 15 years ago when we were bringing back electric trams to Dublin and people said, the overhead wires, they're awful. And I said, look, when I see those wires, I know the air is cleaner to breathe because it's not burning diesel to to move people around. But we need to constantly uh, communicate why the transition is needed uh, and bring people with us on this journey.
1: Okay, to finish, and we only have a few minutes. Um, I'm conscious that uh, we're all conscious that there's been quite a step change in the US um, approach to, um, for example, investment, a much more interventionist um, approach taken by um, President Biden and I suppose by extension the Congress, although there's obviously conflict there, but there's a big uh, shift in um, the Ameri- the approach in the US um, and for example, quite hefty subsidies to um, particular sectors um, that are so critical uh, to this agenda. I'm wondering, do you do, do you think any all three of you, and I might just stay with Kieran if you like, because I'll be finishing on this question, so I'll start with you and go finish up with the, with the, with the colleagues. Do you think that Europe, um, how shall I put it, has anything to learn from that shift? Um, which perhaps we wouldn't certainly wouldn't have expected from an American government in, in the last decade or so and we now see it um, uh, we now see it um, really in very stark terms. What's your observation on that? And do you think it will catch on in Europe?
2: I, I think it will. And I think in its simplest form, they used more carrots. They are using more carrots than sticks in the United States. I was in the Tesla factory in Berlin. They said, look, we're not investing anymore in Germany because of the attractive um uh, discounts we now have in the united states so i think that is a lesson it feeds into claudia's point about regulation um we in brussels we uh, if something isn't moving we tend to bring in uh, a law to make sure it happens but i think in the united states they're much focused more on a tax break uh, so i think there probably is something that we need to bring home from the ira uh, in the united states and apply to our own way of working in Brussels. Claudia?
0: I, I agree with Pierre, and I, I guess what we see is that there's lots of money going around in Europe, but it's so tough to access it. It's so bureaucratic to access the European funds. I have met so many companies who say, they would never apply for a European grant because they can't afford to employ employ somebody just to fill out the forms. And that is ridiculous. And I think what the US is showing us is the power of really using a part of your federal level that is strong in the right places. If anything, I think it should be for us, an argument for stronger European integration where it benefits everybody. If we want to make these processes less bureaucratic, we might need a little bit more of a stronger federal European level in certain aspects to be able to make it less bureaucratic. But the problem is a, a is one of, 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 of arguments on where does the, the competence lie when it comes to tax matters and so on and so on. But nobody, no, I don't think that any consumer or any any company in european company really cares about the institutional question of a, a, a fight about competencies between the member states and the european union they just want if there's money we should have easy access to it and not make it as complex as it is in the european union and that is i think a really yeah that is it's actually so sad. It makes me so angry that this is this is how we're losing against uh, in comparison to the United States, and we should definitely take a page out of their book when it comes to being unbureaucratic when it matters.
1: Lisa, do you have a, any thoughts on? Well, I'd like to
3: reassure our two parliamentarians that I think, you know, us, we Europeans are, are are doing very well, and I'm very glad to be part of Europe and not part of the US. So they, there may be some examples um, here where they've, you know, they're putting in initiatives, but let's be honest, some of these things are already in Europe, like the INRA, um, infrastructure and the money that's going in there are some things that we're already doing saying that there are some things that I really like in the US and it's not necessarily new. And um, in energy efficiency finance, they have great schemes and they're at local level rather than uh, the federal level where you can, you know, that where the loan stays tied to the property, it's paid back via your property tax or paid back via your energy bills. And that's the kind of thing that they seem to manage to do as a municipal level or a state level. And people understand it over there and it's via tax break. And so that we get over these all these high costs that consumers um, can't get into the high upfront costs associated with the transition. So I suppose I I quite like some of those, uh, maybe it's the autonomy of municipalities, but they're given the freedom at federal level and the backing at federal level to put some of these schemes in place that I would like to see more of, and maybe some education among them, the consumers of how they work and not to be afraid of loans tied to properties. Um, But I think overall, the European Parliament is driving extremely ambitious targets Um, it's not easy. I think everybody knows that the transition is going to cause it's changing society. That's never going to be easy. So we all just have to work very hard in our own little areas to try and achieve this.
1: Well, there is a a nice strong endorsement for the European Parliament from an independent uh, observer. Professor Lisa Ryan, Claudia Gamon and Kieran Cough. thank you very much for your participation this afternoon, for your presentations and for the discussion. I certainly found it very stimulating and very insightful uh, on all your parts. Thank you in particular to the European Parliament Liaison Office uh, in Ireland uh, for their support for this webinar. And thank you uh, if you have been for watching and listening, and quite a few of you have, and we look forward to seeing you all again very soon. Thank you, and good day. This podcast
0: is brought to you by the IIEA. Sharing ideas, shaping policy.